Turn in your Bibles to um, Acts chapter 18, please. Is my voice carrying well enough with this, or do I need to put this on? Am I, everybody can hear me? Good. Oh, no. Okay. Let me put my lapel mic on. I have a soft voice anyways. Acts 18, and I'm going to shorten the reading to uh, verse 11. All right. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Hear God's holy and perfect word. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having re- recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. <clears throat> he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God's word. May he bless it to the extension of his kingdom and to the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you sent your Son to die for sinners, for the likes of us. Jesus Christ, that you so love the Father and the Bride, that you left glory for Calvary's cross and rose for our justification. And Holy Spirit, that you made us alive to these things. Have mercy upon us, Lord, in the presentation of your gospel truths this morning, that we would believe in you and you only. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We're actually making some pretty good progress. Uh, Acts chapter 18. I didn't think, um, I think this is our seven, 72nd sermon. So I thought, I thought it would, we'd be going slower. But we're making pretty good progress. I think after the book of uh, Acts, my intention, whenever that is, is to deal um, with 1st, uh, 2nd, 3rd John. That's my game plan. Okay. <clears throat> Let's try to get a handle on... Uh, the various places of missionary evangelistic labors the Apostle Paul has um, previously uh, been as of late. And before we look at those particular places, I want to remind us, you're trying to jack up the volume, I want to remind us that the places are, are not the significant part of the narrative. Um, Jesus Christ didn't send Paul, I know this is going to seem silly, to consider the 
topography. Jesus Christ sent Paul, who was a fisher of men, for um, people. Again, Christ did not send Paul or his gospel servants, and we're looking at the preaching of Christ in Corinth, but we're looking at the gospel labor, labors of a gospel or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't send his servants out to be sightseers of mountains and lakes and buildings and gardens. So Paul was sent by Jesus Christ to these different places that he would speak to different people about one thing. And that one thing that the Apostle Paul was to speak to them about was about Christ Jesus and salvation in Christ. And you know, we, we, we sometimes think, well, people are so different. And weren't they different 2,000 years ago? Are they different today? Beloved, they're the same. Before God, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, rich, red, or poor, slave, free. You lived in the 1600s or the 2000s. Before God, the need is the same. We are sinners before a holy God, and we, re- we need remission of sin. And so Paul can go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they all need one thing. D- don't, don't fall into that thinking, well, if I go somewhere else, they can't, they, they're really not open to hear the message of the cross. That's what they need. So he, he gives the cross wherever he goes. And so what we're looking at in the book of Acts, the gospel labors of a gospel servant, a, a a minister is a servant. So the word deacon is diakonos. It means servant. The minister is a diakonos. Christ is actually referred to as diakonos in one or two places. He's a servant. And so we're looking at the work of a man who's called by Jesus Christ to work. And I'm just going to make some small applications to that. Christ calls his preachers to work and not to recreate. I'm not saying that ministers can't have a time where they relax and they they enjoy some recreation. But that's not the purpose of the gospel minister. The gospel minister has been called by Christ to minister, to work, and not to absorb himself. J.C. Ryle would would talk about, Matthew, Matthew Henry would talk about this. He would say it was beneath the dignity of a minister to be out there hunting and fishing and doing all these things. He doesn't mean that you can't relax for a little bit with your fishing. He means to devote yourself to those things because you're to be a man of one thing. This is where Paul will later tell Timothy, who he loved as a son, Timothy, you're a minister. Don't be involved in the day-to-day affairs of other things because Christ has called you to be a worker about one thing. Again, not that you can't use those things in an ancillary or a secondary fashion, but we see that Paul is a worker and he is busy about the business. Who was the fellow that was rebuilding the temple? Uh, was it uh, Ezra, I think? And it was Tobiah and Sanballat said, come, come down and talk to us. They were enemies of God. And they were trying to get him away from his purpose of rebuilding the temple. And he sent a note saying to them, what? I'm too busy. I have stuff to do. I'm not coming down. And so if I, I could apply that, uh, just looking principally at Paul being devoted to his work, because that's what he's called to. For us as Christians, not every Christian is called to be a preacher, obviously. But we are to be busy in the, in, the, in the realm and among the people and with the gifts that God has given to us for the glory of God. I mentioned in my pastoral prayer that sometimes Christians live, oftentimes we do, we live below the dignity of our royal name of Jesus Christ. We, we fritter away our time and our talents with things of no value. I'm not saying that everything on the internet is no, of no value, but a lot of the times when we're sitting like zombies on the phone, 
that has no eternal value. None. Right? And you, you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are called his royal son, royal daughter. You have an eternal soul. And wherever he's placed you, with whatever gifts he's given to you, he's given you those gifts to bring glory to him, that it would redound to his everlasting glory. And so, so this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we think about the eternal things. We're not, look, we're not looking at the temporal. I'm, again, we're not saying we don't vote and we don't do all the things that we do. But there's something higher that we set our minds on because we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you raise the kids the way you do? To the glory of God. Why do you vote the way you do? To the glory of God. Everything is, 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 is with... I mentioned it last week in the preaching. Jonathan Edwards said, Lord, stamp eternity on my... Have you ever heard this? My eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyes. That will help us as Christians be devoted to our work and not be devoted to our recreation. Again, I'm not saying that we can't relax with recreation. There was a famous Jewish guy, an unbeliever. He said, amusing ourselves... He wrote a book, amusing ourselves to what? You ever read it? To death. That's the Christian church. We're so busy recreating, we're not working. When Christ comes back, he wants to see us working in the master's field, wherever he's placed us. You live for Christ's glory with the gifts that he's given you. We see that with the apostle Paul. And and I'm going to just kind of go back to what I said. He sends Paul, the gospel servant, to these different places to talk to the different people I will make an application. The church, and I'm just going to mean church generically, the church errs when it focuses on buildings and things and not people. I'm not saying that you can't have a church building. I'm not saying that you can't fix it up or make it even look pretty. But the church errs when that becomes the focus. And when the focus of the ministry of the church is not on people, bringing people to Christ, wooing people to Christ, building people up in Christ, feeding them with the word, feeding them with the sacrament, so that we... Jesus Christ did not purchase a church with his blood for brick and mortar. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is living stones, as as Peter says in his first epistle. He he died for people, for human beings. Only human beings have, have souls, and only human beings are the image bearers. So the ministry of the church is to present people beautiful in Christ, not beautiful buildings. And, we, and, and it's easy to get that mixed up as a Christian. And if you've been in, I was raised a Roman Catholic and not a Protestant. You go, I was in Europe at one time. And you go to a Notre Dame. Notre Dame means Our Lady. So you have Notre Dame of, 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 of Paris, but there's a Notre Dame on every corner. We went to Notre Dame in Strasbourg. We went to Notre Dame in Belgium, in Luxembourg. Notre Dame. Besides it being idolatry, the buildings are gorgeous. The church errs when the focus is not bringing Christ to make people beautiful in Christ. And it's not just Protestants, uh, Catholics that do this. Protestants do the same thing. We are going to build a $2 million building, a $5 million building. We're going to do X and Y and Z. And then the Lord is really blessing. And maybe he is with a beautiful building. But that's not the focus. And sometimes when you're in a place, you'll start to see, well, the focus seems on things. It doesn't seem to be on people. 
the Christian ministry is about people. And the reason it's easy for the church to get sidetracked on things, things don't bite you back. Stuff is not messy. We're kind of messy. But that's the work. The ministry of the church is about people. I know it's simple. And then we look at the gospel labor as he, go, he goes to all of these places. He'll meet with encouragement. Another thing, one of the reasons Paul keeps going from town to town and city to city, well, he's led there by God the Holy Spirit, but practically, God helps him to move from one place to the next place. And you know how God the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus helps him keep moving and keep preaching, keep gospeling to the next set of people. Do you know what he does? He sends persecution. Acts chapter 8. How did the message of Christ saving sinners leave Jerusalem and go to the whole world? The Apostle Paul was Saul of Tarsus and was busy chopping up Christians like cordwood and he ran them out of Jerusalem. And as he chased them out with persecution, here the Christians go everywhere gospeling. Well, that's what God did for the Lord Jesus Christ, for, for, for the Apostle Paul. He chases them around with persecution as a, as a motivating force to keep him moving, gospeling as he goes forth. So he's been, thus far, Paul has preached the gospel of Christ in um, Jerusalem, in Judea. He's preached the gospel of Christ in uh, Antioch, Syria. He's been in Antioch, uh, there's actually Antioch, uh, Turkey. He's been preaching Christ in Judea. He's been cr- preaching Christ in Syria. He went over to the island of Cyprus preaching Christ. He goes over to Turkey, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And most recently, we've seen him preaching Jesus in Thessalonica. And then he gets run out of town in Thessalonica. Then he goes over, what is it, 40, 50 miles, uh, let's see, southwest to Berea. He preaches Christ in Berea. And then what happens? He gets run out of town. He gets run out. This is the gospel labor. He's preaching Jesus. Some believe, most don't believe. And the most that don't believe, they persecute Christ's servant. And beloved, I, sometimes as Christians, we think like this, and I don't think we should. Well, bad things are happening in my life, and that means God doesn't love me. You ever think like that? And we usually think pain is bad, pleasure is good. And so when we say bad things, we mean we're sick, our kids are sick, we're poor, our kids are broke, something like that. Therefore, God does not like me. Don't, don't think like that. Does God the Father love God the Son? Of course he does. Read Isaiah 53. It pleased the Father to do what to the Son? To crush the Son. To account him a sinner for us. Sometimes when we look at the outward and everything is not looking like it's going, like this doesn't look the way the ministry should work. People should be calling me reverend and I should be getting a Mercedes. I shouldn't be getting hit off the head with a rock, chased from town to town. No. This is the common experience of the gospel servant. And I will say, it's the common experience of the Christian. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 29, you'll get this in my notes if you're on the email list. It has been granted to us to do what? To believe in Jesus. But then right away the Holy Spirit tells the Apostle Paul, Not only has it been granted to us to believe, it has been granted to us to do what? To suffer for his name's sake. He says, well, Pastor John, you're too Irish. I am too Irish. I'm three quarters Irish. 
I've got melancholy up to here. God uses sorrow, sadness, and affliction to do what? To wean us from the world and to drive us to Christ, to make us live for him. So that's why when you look at the gospel sermons, you're like, boy, I don't, now everybody wants to be a minister because you eat fried chicken during the week and then you play golf and move your lips for half an hour. Back then, who wanted to be a gospel minister? It meant a life of pain, cross-carrying, and then dying, martyrdom. But beloved, it's not just the minister that's called to, to deny himself and die to self and car- carry a cross. It's all of us. So it's the common experience of Christ's gospel er to suffer for preaching the gospel. It would be a bad thing if you go to a place that's heathen and everyone says, we love what, we, we love what you're saying. My best life now, health and wealth, I'm loving this. Can we have more? That would be a bad thing. Jesus Christ says, Beware when all men speak what of you. Well. This is the common experience of the Christian. So, beloved, if you are are laboring to live for Jesus, and especially if you say the name Jesus, if you tell people about Jesus, which I'm for, you're going to suffer. You will. And why for this man? Because the natural man hates God. I hate to say that. Romans 3, 1 through 18, Romans 8 and 7, the natural man hates God. And so when the natural man hears God's message, what do they do to the messenger? That's why. And so when we look at the common experience of the Christian living for Christ, again, as I say, if you say that you're a Christian, or if you tell people the gospel of Jesus, you will suffer for it. If you don't want to suffer, just keep your mouth shut and hide your gospel talent under a bushel, which is a bad idea, by the way. That's the guy with the one talent. Don't be the guy with the one talent. Many people do that when they, because of the fear of men. We'll talk about it in just a bit. But this is the common experience of the, the servants of Christ. It's the will of God. It's the will of God. We talked about this morning the fifth commandment. I mentioned this, mor- this morning in Sunday school, pray for my evening sermon. My evening sermon is going to be a doozy. It's on Numbers chapter 5. It's a really strange passage. Pray for me. But it's, it's essentially an extrapolation of the seventh commandment, which our culture trashes the seventh commandment. When we're looking at honoring mother and father, honoring our marriage, not committing adultery, all of those things, sexual morality or immorality, the Ten Commandments of God's moral law is our duty to do our duty. It's the will of God to do our duty. It it was Christ's will that his servants suffer. It makes them more Christ-like. It makes them more effective. It makes them more heavenly. And it's a way that he builds the kingdom. Why? Because the people that are being, going to be converted in Corinth, they're looking at a guy that's no charlatan, and they know he's no charlatan. This is no best life now guy. This is not the guy with the golden teeth and everything's perfect and $5,000 suit and diamond shoes. He, this guy shows up, and he's being beaten with sticks, and he won't stop telling them about Jesus. And what happens when the audience hears him? This guy believes what he says. The other people you can pick out a mile away. Why are you doing this for the diamond shoes? They, they, they know it. That's why you tell people the best life now, because you want their cash. These people know that if Paul keeps preaching this, he's going to catch a beating. And he does. 
And God uses that to extend his kingdom. What's going on here? You ever read the book of Job? Ever read the book of Job? Job 1 and 2. Job 1, I think. Job 1 starts off. The devil has to come. The angels all come and present themselves before God. And God starts the contest off with, with, with Satan. He says, have you considered my righteous servant? It's God that starts the contest. Have you considered my righteous servant, Job? And what does the devil say? Take away his stuff. Take away his kids. Take away his, his health. The only reason he loves you is because you put a hedge around him. And, and what does God say? I'll, I'll let you take his kids. I'll let you take his health. I'll let you take his stuff. Can't take his life. Watch this. Watch what faith will do. The reason Christ permits suffering in the life of the gospel servant in your life is because there is a contest in the heavenlies between God and the devil. And God is going to use us as an object lesson. My children love me more than life. More than anything. More than their kids, more than their mom, more than their dad, more than their health, more than their stuff. My children love me more than anything. That's the victory of faith. That's what's going on. That's what's going on in Paul's life. That's what's going on in your life. That's what's going on in my life. God will refine the faith. We will cling to Christ no matter what. That's what's happening here. There's a cosmic battle going on in the heavenlies. And we win in Christ. And most recently, we've seen Paul in Athens, just before he gets to Corinth. Athens is the place of the worldly wise man. We could say it's the city of the ancient world that represented the wisdom of man apart from Jesus. And what kind, of, what kind of reception did Paul get when he came preaching the cross? Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Judgment day is coming. What did the worldly wise man say to that simple message? That is the dumbest thing. Who in their right mind would ever believe such foolishness? That, is, that represents... The wisdom of man apart from Christ is foolishness. So we go from Athens, which represents the wisdom of man. Now we come to Corinth. Corinth is an exceedingly wealthy place. This represents the wealth of man apart from Christ. It's poverty. This is a Revelations 2 and 3. The wisdom of man apart from Jesus is all darkness. The wealth of man apart from Jesus Christ is all what? You ever watch a wealthy man die? You ever watch a wealthy man die? After my dad died, there was a guy, his friend, he opened up my dad's coffin. I was exceedingly offended. And he stuck a golden coin on my dad's chest. Why he did it, I don't know why. He closed the thing down. Did my dad spend in that money? You know what the difference between a rich guy and a poor guy when they die? Is the amount of shellac on the coffin. You take nothing with you. The Bible says that money grows wings and flies away. There are not many rich, not many powerful. But here, there's, remember the contest is going on. Well, I'm rich. I have tons of money. Oh, you're poor. Luke 12. Remember the rich guy? Oh, I'm going to build. I've got such a bumper crop. I'm going to rip down my little barns and build big ones. And I'm going to say to myself, oh, self, you, you have many days and much goods to live for many years. And you're going to hear a voice from heaven saying what? Go ahead, say it. You fool. Why? You're going to die tonight. Many years ago, a guy came to me doing spraying for the bugs at the church. 
he said, we, we were chatting, and he said, I don't believe any of this Christian God. I don't believe Jesus or anything. And I said, well, that's interesting. I, got, I have some counsel for you. Just don't ever die. You're okay. Just don't, you're, you're golden. You're okay. Just don't die. He's like, you're being foolish. I said, oh, no, I'm not being foolish. You're being foolish. Unbelief is foolish. You're living like you're not going to die. I'm flat out telling you, you are going to die. And then you're going to meet God. Well, what are you going to do with your stuff? You're going, to give it to, you're going to give it to your relatives and they're going to blow it away. Everything that you took years to grow and to build, they're going to fritter it away. Cousin Bobby's getting your stuff. <laughs> right? The wealth of man apart from Christ is wretched, wretched, wretched poverty. That's what's happening. God's shaming the wisdom of the wise. God's shaming the wealth of the, of the rich to extol the wisdom of Christ, to extol the riches of Jesus. That's what's happening here. And when Paul comes to this place, Corinth is part of the Roman Empire. How did the Roman Empire become the Roman Empire? They called it the Pax Romana. This is how man, or Pax is peace. The peace of Rome. How did Rome make peace with everybody in its empire? It stomped on their neck with a jack jack boot. It's the way of natural man. You do what I say or I will kill you. And that's how they made peace. And God orchestrated and God used even the Roman Empire to advance the gospel. So here comes this gospeler to this city, Corinth, which was the capital of Achaia at the time, not Athens, Greece. It was Corinth. He comes here as a part of this uh, Roman Empire. Now, uh, Corinth was an isthmus. So an isthmus is what it's surrounded on three three sides by water, connected by a little bitty land bridge, and it's about um, maybe fifty miles, almost due west from from Athens, maybe a little bit southwest along the coast, and then you come to Corinth, and it was a port city, and in particularly in the, in the ancient world, this is how you traveled. What would port cities be known for? It's like when you come to military towns, not all military towns. But a lot of military towns have certain things in them that you think, oh, those are kind of unsavory things that young military guys like to frequent, sadly. So they carry with them certain sinful things. Port cities, Katie, bar the door. (laughs) They were known because you get lots of people coming and going, lots of single guys coming and going. And when you have lots of single guys coming and going, why was the Wild West the Wild West? Because there were lots of single guys coming and going. And they had a couple of activities that they wanted to engage in. And they're all sinful. So we come to this port city, and it's to this city that Christ sends his gospel-er, preaching to salvation. And it was actually a very wealthy and cosmopolitan city. Cosmopolitan meaning there are people from everywhere. So you're going to get a lot of different people that Paul's going to have an opportunity to share Christ with. But it is, as I say, a wealthy city. And primarily, it's a Gentile city. This is the fulfillment of the scriptures. From the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, I would argue Genesis 12, 15, certainly Genesis 28. In Abraham's seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Who's Abraham's seed? Galatians 3, Christ. It was always God's purpose to save Jew and Gentile. And not to have separate little tribes, separate little families, but one family. Beloved, we all come from two folks. 
Adam and Eve. And then in Jesus Christ, he's building one household. Not one household with this color skin, not another household with that. No, one household. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's going to make into one. That's a fulfillment of scripture. Scripture. So even when we see Paul being chased off, and it looks like, oh, this looks crazy. Why would you go to this port city? What's going on? The word of God is being accomplished. When we study, the Puritans would say God has two books, the book of Providence and the book of Scripture. Providence is what happens. Mostly we can see what has happened, but we don't know why it has happened. When we look around, we think, boy, look at our country. Look at our country. Does it not look like our country is Sodom and Gomorrah and there's no government over it? Does it not look like that to you? Oh, there, there's government over it. And I'm not talking the guy and the president. God. God's governing. But it doesn't look like he's governing it, but he's governing it to fulfill his word. He comes to this Gentile place, and being a Gentile place, the gospeler comes to a place that is pagan. And I'm not using that as a pejorative. These are heathen. These are not worshipers of the true God. He comes to people that are he, in Athens. They're worshipers of the Greek false gods and false goddesses. And that's to the kind of person that Christ is sending his gospel to. Pagans. Worshipping false gods. Bowing down to sticks and stones. And there were three temples. One, one was to Apollo. One was to Venus. Uh, or, or the other, the, the Greek name. Venus is the Roman name. The Greek name was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the other one was uh, Neptune, because they were on the coast, the goddess of the god of false god, of, of water. And I think, actually, Neptune was the false god of water, and for some reason, he was the false god of horses. I don't know how you got water and horses in there, and maybe earthquakes. But Aphrodite, they had a temple to Aphrodite, Venus, in Apollo. And it's set up over the city, the goddess of love. What do you think pagans will do for the goddess of love? Like, what kind of worship will they have? They had cultic religious prostitutes, thousands of them, male and female. So when we look around today at boys thinking whatever they're going to do with boys and girls and girls, we think, oh, wow, this, when has this new thing happened? This new thing happened the moment Adam sinned against God. It's, it's always, read, uh, oh, who is it? Not Josephus, the, uh, Eusebius. Not Eusebius. Is it Eusebius? It'll come to me. Oh, it'll come to me. Who is that? Philo. Philo, the Jewish historian at the time of Jesus. He writes about insane immoral things at the time of Jesus. Insane. It would curl your toes. You would think it was now. That's the city. So, well, he, 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 later in 1 Corinthians, God is, is establishing the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, God says to the Christian guys in the church who love Jesus, they're living in a city that there's a cultic prostitute every five feet. And they're used to using them before when they were converted. You could be, I love my religion so much that I'm going to use the cultic prostitute. You think that's going to influence the church that's in that society? Oh, yeah. Paul actually has to say to the Christian believers, now they're believers, but they're living in this, this is sin city. This is sin city. Don't go to the prostitutes. Imagine telling a Christian guy, don't go to a prostitute. Well, that does, that's not very genteel. That's kind of earthy. That's crass. 
That's kind of right. The Holy Spirit inspired him to say, don't go to a prostitute. I'm deeply offended. How dare you tell me not to go? What do you mean you're deeply offended? I know exactly what you're thinking because I'm the Holy Spirit, says the Holy Spirit. And he says, remember, you're one spirit with God. You're one sarks or flesh with your wife. Don't be one soma with a prostitute. You know what the Greek word for prostitute, the Greek word is? Pornea. God plants a church, saves people in Porneaville. They're rich, they're wealthy, they used to have the Isthmian Games like the Olympics, and they live for recreation. What does that sound like to you? Living for recreation, cash stuffed in our pockets, and living for sexual immorality. The modern American, would, we, we would fit in like a glove in Corinth. We were like, wow, this is great. Look at what I can see on the internet. This is awesome. I wonder where I'm going to go out to eat tonight. I've got so much money I don't know what to do with. That's these people. And if you were to send your gospel servant to Sin City, what do you think your chances of success would be? Good or bad? Would this be the place that you would start a church? Many years ago, I've been in the ministry almost 22 years. I heard a young guy praying at Presbytery. Oh, Lord, send me good people to the church. I'm like, what do you mean? What he means is people with short hair and tie. I'm not against short hair and ties. Cleaned up folk. Did Jesus send gospel servants to look for cleaned up folk? No. He threw his servant in the middle of Sin City. Why? That's what he came for. (laughs) He didn't come for the good folk. He didn't come for righteous people. Guess what? Sorry to tell you. Apart from Christ, no one's righteous. Apart from Christ, that's what he came to save. And look at what happens. God the Holy, it it says, as he's preaching, many Corinthians believed. We, We wouldn't believe this. How does this happen? God, the Holy Spirit, makes it effectual. Jesus says in Matthew 21, tax collectors and prostitutes, porneia, will make it into heaven before the, the Pharisee. Well, I'm looking pretty good. I tithe every five seconds and I can do my thing in Eucharistic and I look down on my snoot at everybody else because I'm so good. Jesus says, you're not going to heaven. The hooker will go to heaven before you. How dare you say that? It's Jesus that says it. That's who he's come to save. Beloved, does that offend you? I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. And I I do want to say this because it's so exciting to me. He says to the Apostle Paul, of course he's going to get himself in a jam here too. Jesus says to the Apostle Paul, stop being afraid. Don't fear any longer. You see that in the text? Stop being afraid. Have you ever read the Bible like this? Of course these guys, these prophets were rock stars and these apostles were rock stars. They're they're immediately inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm just a bozo on the bus. I'm just regular Joe Blow the Christian. That's why I'm such a schnook. But these guys, 
Of course they always lived for Jesus. When Jesus, the risen Jesus, which means he's alive, amen, he says to Paul, stop being afraid. What does that mean about Paul? This is a mind blower. Because sometimes we think the Apostle Paul had like an S on his chest and was flying around just telling everybody about Jesus, taking a beating, and he didn't even care. That means Paul was afraid. Afraid of who? People. People. I've heard so many guys tell me they're going to be in the ministry. And then they get in the ministry and find out. What? People sometimes are scary. Why would Paul be afraid to share Jesus? He lost all his Jewish family and friends. They don't love you anymore. If you own Jesus Christ, you, really, for real, this is in Matthew 10, and your mom and your dad and your brother, your sister, or your son and daughter don't, and you tell them Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, what's happening to you? They're going to hate you. And Jesus says, if you love your family more than me, what? You're not worthy of me. And how, how could you stop that? You just shut your mouth. You just shut your mouth. Don't tell them about Jesus. Just hide Jesus. Bad idea. And for, for this man, because he's a gospeler, he's a herald, he has to. And when the preacher comes and says, there is one God, imagine doing this. Going to people that believe other gods, like Paul, and say those gods are not real. Those gods are not real. And those gods are an expression of demons. What's going to be the response? Oh, we love this? We love to hear this? You're right and we're wrong? Which is what he says. And then he preaches Christ to them. What could happen to you? You could lose your life. You could lose your life. Have you ever been beaten because you love Christ? Have you? Ever been physically hit? Have you ever shed blood? The book of Hebrews says you haven't shed blood yet. Have you ever lost property? Lost? Most of us will shed our names if someone just gives us a weird look. Right? It's the fear of man. Is the fear of man sin? To fear man more than God, is it sin? Yes or no? It's sin. Paul was afraid of man. He wasn't made a kryptonite. Beloved, when you're converted to Jesus Christ, God does not instantly turn you into spiritual kryptonite. We get afraid. We get broken. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of them saying mean things about us. We're afraid of people thinking less of us. We're afraid of people hurting us more than we fear God. I want you to think of the calling of Isaiah, certainly Jeremiah, certainly, certainly Ezekiel. God says to Jeremiah, when I send you to my people, don't fear them. What was it? Psalm, oh, it'll come to me, 125. Those who, go, those who sow in tears will reap with what? Joicing, rejoicing. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish minister from the 1800s, says that's the preacher's psalm. That's the gospeler's psalm. 
you, if you think that you're going to be faithful to Jesus in an anti-Jesus world without incurring any opposition, you're not thinking rightly. The more that we all, every Christian, the more that we will live intensely and purely for Jesus in an anti-Christ world, we will suffer. But notice what Christ says. Don't be afraid. I love this about Jesus. I love so many things about Jesus. Jesus is so gentle to him. He doesn't say, look at Paul, tighten up. Be a man. Come on, what's wrong with you? We would do this. Jesus does not treat his servant that way. He's gentle to him. He, he, he assures him, I am with you. I will protect you. Press on and live for me. Beloved, we, 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 we all of us are servants of the Jesus Christ. All of us are going to suffer persecution. Christ calls us to live intensely for him, even in the face of these things. And he tells us, don't be afraid of them. I'm with you. I'll protect you. And then like Paul, press on. Press on living, living for Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.